Good morning, everybody. And uh, as Tom mentioned, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Um, it is just such a, a privilege to spend this morning with you. I'm excited to be back. I was gone last Sunday, and it felt really weird not to be here on a Sunday morning, but I was up in Donnelly at Shiloh Bible Camp, where uh, a lot of us are going to be next week, uh, and I, I had an opportunity for six days to equip and challenge some summer missionaries who are going up to, or are going to stay in Shiloh for two months uh, to minister there and to serve. And it was just such a privilege to get to equip them. But I'm glad to be back here with you all. And this morning, uh, we're going to continue on as we were looking at Jonah two weeks ago. We're going to be jumping back into the story of Jonah. So if you would turn with me to Jonah chapter one, we're going to be seeing the very end of Jonah chapter one and then all of chapter two this morning. And as I was uh, preparing for this, I, I couldn't help but reflect uh, on something that I did a, a couple years ago. Uh, like many of you, I moved here after wandering in the wilderness that is California. Uh, after I lived there for four and a half years for school, and I graduated December 15th, 2017. And December 16th, my wife and I were in Idaho. Uh, so we, we came up here, and I remembered thinking back at that time, winter in Idaho is very different than winter in California. And if I don't want to pack on the pounds as soon as I get there, I need to challenge myself to do something that's going to keep me active. And so I decided that uh, to keep me motivated, to, to keep me active, I would sign up for a half marathon. And I remember I had no idea what there would be up here, and so I just Googled half marathons in Idaho. And the first one that came up was the race to Roby Creek. And I had no clue about uh, what this half marathon was going to be, and I didn't realize until after I signed up that it is the hardest half marathon in the northwest of the United States. I had no idea. Uh, just happened to be the first one that I happened upon. But then as I did more research, as the days got closer, and as my dad kept reminding me, it was going to be hard. It was going to be really hard. And I, I knew that conceptually. I very well knew conceptually it was going to be hard. I had heard so much about it after I continued to research, but, but even the, in the days leading up to it, there, was, there seemed to be a, a disconnect because in my head, I knew that it was going to be hard, but I don't know that I fully believed it. Uh, I kind of was in doubt that it was going to be as hard as everybody says, uh, even though my dad read the, the description of each mile and it, was, it sounded terrifying. But on the day of the race, when I ran, as soon as I crossed that finish line, and I didn't even walk 100 feet to where they had all the food and the buffet. I, I gradually, as soon as I crossed the line, I barely stepped to the side and I just sat down because I was so utterly exhausted. And so after completing the race there, there was no longer a disconnect. I now not only knew conceptually how hard that race was, but I, I believed it wholeheartedly because I had just experienced that as I collapsed in exhaustion. 
And this morning, as we continue on in our unexpected journey of the prophet Jonah, we see a very similar disconnect within the heart and mind of this prophet that will be remedied by the end of chapter 2. He knew conceptually of the grace, of the mercy, of the omniscience and sovereignty of God. He knew that conceptually, but he didn't believe it wholeheartedly. And we will see today that this all changes once he is in the belly of that great fish. And all too often, there seems to be a similar disconnect in our lives. We often know conceptually of who God is, but at times we do not wholeheartedly believe him and believe in his character. But what we will see is that God uses Jonah's situation in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 2, verse 10, to not only remove the disconnect that was there in his heart and his mind, But God also uses this graciously to equip Jonah for the good works that God still had set before him to do. Through the life of Jonah, we will see three ways this morning that God equips his servant for good works. And as Jonah is equipped for good works this morning, I pray that every single one of us here will be as well. But let, let's start our, our morning together reading Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress And he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. This is a a unique passage of scripture that we find ourselves in this morning. And, And something takes place here that does not take place that frequently throughout the whole of scripture and that is where we are are going to find ourselves reading through a narrative 
And then all of a sudden, the text turns from narrative to prose. Or we, we go from following Jonah's story, and now we stop to hear the prophet reciting a poetic prayer. And at first, understanding a poetic passage can seem daunting. It can be a challenge to extract what the main point is. But I'm grateful, especially today, for verses chapter 1, verse 17, and then chapter 2, verse 10, because those verses do my job for me, which I'm very grateful for this morning. Because we see in 1, verse 17, it was the Lord who appointed the great fish to swallow Jonah. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, it was the Lord that commanded the great fish to vomit Jonah up upon the dry land. And these two verses act as bookends for this passage, or really they act as arrows directing us towards what the main point is going to be of this entire passage. And the focal point that we need to see this morning is simply the great sovereignty of Yahweh. This is on display for all to see as we now assess the ways in which God used this experience to equip Jonah for the task that had been set before him. Let us now consider those three ways in which Yahweh equips his servant for good works. First, what we see in verses 1 through 4 is Yahweh refines his chosen servants. Yahweh refines his chosen servants. And as the the curtains pull back and our scene begins, we notice right away something very clearly has happened. The, The pace of this story has changed dramatically. If you can think back to when we first started in Jonah It is a long list of quick events that are taking place one after another after another. We see that that the story is thrust from the shores of Joppa to the deck of the ship, down to the hold of the ship, back up to the deck of the ship, and then into the sea. But now the audience is with Jonah in the belly of the great fish. And the pace of the story slows dramatically. So that we, as well as Jonah, have time to reflect on God's great provision. To reflect upon what has just taken place. We see a prayer very reminiscent of Psalms such as Psalm 18 or Psalm 42. Where each of those shows someone crying out to the Lord or longing, desiring to be in the presence of the one true God. A psalm where here now we see Jonah takes the first four verses to summarize what he's later going to explain in detail in verses 5 through 7. Verses 1 through 4, we see Jonah praying from inside the belly of the great fish. But then verses 5 through 7, we're taken back with him to the moment he was almost losing his life in the depths of the sea. Because we know that that before Jonah had been saved by the great fish, he was cast into the sea, cast in by the God whom he disobeyed. The God from whom he is running is now the one 
to whom we will see Jonah cries out for salvation. What's amazing is that here Jonah admits that that though it was the sailors who physically threw him or hurled him into the sea, it was only by the sovereign hand of Yahweh and the sovereign plan of God that they did so. And it was there in the sea now that Jonah found himself in the most helpless of situations. In verse 15 of chapter 1, we see that that though the sea ceased to rage, Jonah still experienced great peril as he was in the sea. And in the waters, what we see is his heart cries out to the only one who can save him. Jonah describes for us just how dire the situation is when he says he cries out from the belly of Sheol. Though he's not literally dead yet, he is close to it. He is on the doorsteps of death. But what's very important here is Jonah recognizes amid this great peril, the greatest peril he faces here is not just his physical death. That is not only what concerns him the most. It's not just the breakers and the billows that pass over him, the choppy sea that is pounding against him. That is not his greatest concern. Rather, we see it's his felt separation from the Lord. What we see in verse 4 is a result of what's been coming for a long time. Really, this is something that, that is quite overdue as we've been reading through the story of Jonah Right, Jonah has been on a downward slope since Jonah 1, verse 1. He has been on a downward slope when he first heard the word of the Lord. We see down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the inner part of the ship where he lay down, putting himself down to sleep. He's been on this downward spiral trying so hard to get away from the will of God, from the plans of Yahweh. And, and it seems here that The slippery slope that first started in Jonah 1, verse 1, has now landed him all the way in the depths of the sea. He was trying so hard to get away from God. He so badly wanted to flee from God and from what God was calling him to do in Nineveh. But now he's been cast out of the presence of the Lord He has been expelled from the very sight of Yahweh. We see the the scripture says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Jonah truly now feels the result of the downward slope he has been on for such a long time. He truly feels that he has been completely abandoned by God. Even though we, the audience, know that God, God has not truly abandoned Jonah. This is exactly what the prophet desired initially. He thought this was the outcome that he wanted, and this is why he was running from God. But here and now, in the depths of the sea, with the waters surrounding him on every side, this is likely a much different outcome than Jonah was hoping for. This is not what he hoped for when he hoped to be away from the presence of, and plan of God. 
Jonah is now simultaneously feeling, feeling cast from the side of God while also still feeling the, the full weight of God's correction upon him. And our prophet is so distraught, so upset that he, he believes he's going to die. And he seems to have no hope that he's going to survive this situation. In fact, the, the only hope that he seems to cling to is that he's confident he will see the Lord in heaven someday. That seems to be the only confidence Jonah has, not that he will actually survive. And just as we, we saw in our first message, once again, it, it's as if Yahweh is dealing with Jonah as a parent deals with a child. Certainly in parenting, as many of you parents and fathers can attest to, uh, it is not easy to raise up a child. And no doubt in a, in a fallen world that is characterized by sin, perhaps one of the most challenging tasks to accomplish as a parent is the ones we see in Proverbs 22, 6, where you are called as a parent to train up your child to love and to fear the Lord. And I could imagine that one of the hardest positions a parent could ever be put in is dealing with a child who is in open rebellion or is openly defiant against their parents. A child that needs constant correction and chastising so that they might be protected from the sinful outcome of their choices. Yet at time, there, there may come a point for a parent when they decide to no longer fully guard their child from the results of their sin in hopes that the child will feel the weight of the correction from the Lord and be called to repent and turn back to the one true king. What we see in, in Jonah 2, 1 through 4, is that the Lord is allowing Jonah here, causing Jonah here to be refined. Yahweh, though he, he does save Jonah by means of the great fish, that fish is a, a means of salvation. He doesn't allow Jonah to escape all judgment and pain. Rather, what we see is that the Lord allows Jonah to experience, in part, the results of his sin. But the Lord does not do so because he doesn't love Jonah. But rather, we see very clearly he allows Jonah to experience this because he does love him. And because there is a great work that is still needed to be accomplished by this prophet. Right, we learn from the mouth, mouth of Jonah in, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, that God is gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. God lets Jonah feel the effects of sin. He uses this moment to refine Jonah, to better equip him for the ministry that is set before him in Nineveh. Psalm 66, 10 through 12 tells us, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. The process of being refined and tried as silver is not necessarily a pleasant process. We see that silver is, silver is fired multiple times, so that which is not of the purest of silvers rises to the top and burns away. 
Jonah here is being tried as silver is tried. The Lord, out of love, uses judgment such that Jonah might be better equipped. And the same can be true for those of us who are already servants of the one true king. If we are, are faithfully, or are we, we are to faithfully serve the Lord, if we are to shine brightly for the Lord in a world that is characterized by darkness, we must be refined as silver is refined. So that we might be more effective and diligent to minister as God has called us to, to minister. So in verses 1 through 4, we see one way that God equips his servant for good works is by refining them. Second, in verses 5 through 7, we see Yahweh reminds his servants of their salvation. Yahweh reminds his servants of their salvation. As we continue through the next three verses, we see Jonah begins to further expand upon that hopeless situation. We already had an idea in the first four verses of how hopeless this was, but he goes into even more detail. Just as is characteristic of a psalm, here in a psalm of Jonah, he utilizes vivid imagery to explain what has happened. The downward trend has continued. And now he is engulfed in the deep. And it's in the deep that he's wrapped up. It talks about him being tied up in the seaweed. He goes down so far that his only company is the roots of the mountains. That is how deep down into the sea he has gone. He says that he is so deep there that the earth and its bars were around him forever. And in saying so, the audience is meant to picture bars or gates, perhaps in front of a a town or a home or even in a prison. Jonah has been brought down to the depths and now he's stuck. He is trapped there by these bars, never to return again, at least not of his own power. In reading this, are we able to get the sense yet that the great despair that Jonah must have been feeling in his heart in this moment as he was cast from the presence of the Lord. How did we get here? How did we get to this situation where, where a man who has been raised to love the Lord and act as a mouthpiece for the Lord is now about to die in the bottom of the sea? He's been cast out of the ship that he thought would bring him true freedom. He's been hurled into a matchless, divinely appointed storm that was so grand, the, the boat even expected itself to be destroyed. And now he's been cast out of the sight of the Lord. The, the one he was trying to run from has seemingly left Jonah to his fate. Jonah knows There's nothing he can do. There is nowhere else he can turn. He's drifting away. The the text says he's fading away. He, He fully expects that soon he will not remain. Yet in this hopeless situation, one of those beautiful phrases that we catch in Scripture comes up. 
the phrase, but God, or more specifically in this passage, it says, yet you, referring here to God, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Certainly this phrase, but God, or yet you, should be one that every Christian is very familiar with. How many of us, when we hear that phrase, think of Ephesians 2, 4, right? Yet you, or but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Phrases such as this are used to juxtapose the helpless state of man and the gracious nature of God. And that's exactly what we see happening here in in the story of Jonah. Jonah confesses that in his helpless state, he cried out to the only one who could save him. And his prayer ascended to the one true king. And then God being rich in mercy, gracious, patient, slow to anger, that God, of all things, provides a fish to swallow Jonah, to act as his salvation. A prayer comes to the Lord, no longer saturated in self-righteousness, which we've seen Jonah struggling with since the opening of chapter 1, but now a prayer that is characterized by humility and genuine repentance. And Yahweh saves the floundering prophet. He gives him a second chance, a chance to honor God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all of his being. In 1862, uh, French author Victor Hugo wrote uh, a story that many of us are very familiar with, Les Miserables. And it's a tale that in large part follows the story of the main character, Jean Valjean. And in the early stages of his life, the very opening scenes of the story, we see that Valjean is imprisoned because he steals bread to feed the children of his sister. But where the the story really starts gaining traction and gets going is when Valjean has been released finally from prison. We see he's starting to make a new life for himself. He's getting ready to pursue something and he finds himself in need of a bed and a meal. And it so happens that an interaction takes place between him and a very gracious bishop who invites him into his home. He feeds him, gives him a place to sleep. But in the middle of the night, Valjean awakes And he goes to where he had seen the bishop put their nicest silver, and he takes it. He takes it and leaves the home in the middle of the night, trying to use the small amount of wealth to jumpstart a new life. But he doesn't get get far before he is caught by the gendarme or the police. They recognize the silver that he has, and Valjean is adamant that he didn't steal it, but it was a gift to him from the bishop. And the gendarme, they escort him back to the home of the bishop, 
where upon arrival, the bishop says, why do you have this man in chains? I gave the silver to him as a gift. In fact, Valjean, my brother, you forgot the candlesticks, which are, are worth more than all of the silver that I gave you combined. And he charges his wife to go and get their, their silver candlesticks to give to Valjean as well. In a moment, Valjean is released by the gendarme, and we, we have an intense interaction between Valjean and the bishop, which is perhaps the most memorable interaction in the entire story. And the bishop says to Valjean, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. It is this moment here that Valjean looks back on so many times in the rest of his life as that which motivated him to live life differently, to be a new changed man, to live a life that was worth living. And though it wasn't deserved, we see Jonah, like Jean Valjean, is given a second chance at life. The Lord has raised him literally from the depths of the sea because Jonah's work is not yet done. The Lord has declared Jonah is still the one who will be the instrument to bring the message of God to the people of Nineveh. Jonah has been given this second chance. And actually, we'll see in Jonah chapter 3, He tries to make the most of that second chance. He utilizes it. But just as Jonah will be motivated to do the work set before him because of the saving grace of God, so too should we be motivated. Jonah was almost dead in the waters, but brothers and sisters, we were dead in our sins completely and without hope. But in both cases, God raised his creation to newness of life. This was not deserved. But brothers and sisters, our God rescued us. He offered us that second chance to live for him. The great sacrifice of our Savior and the saving grace we have received must be our ministry motivation. It must be what motivates us to be effective tools in the hands of our God. To effectively do that which he has set before us. So second, we see God equips his servant for good works by reminding them of their salvation. And then third, in verses 8 through 9, we see Yahweh reveals his supremacy to his servants. Yahweh reveals his supremacy to his servants. In the final two verses, what we will see and discuss this morning is that Jonah finally, finally he comes to the conclusion we've been waiting for since we read the first words of this book. After all he's been through, his flight from the Lord, the storm, the sea, the giant fish, 
finally, here and now, Jonah is ready to proclaim God's supremacy. And that very supremacy is highlighted in these two verses as the author uses a contrast. In verse 8, Jonah recognizes the futility of worshiping anyone or anything other than the true God. And though here Jonah is certainly talking about himself and his own heart, his newfound dedication to the Lord, but, but I think it's not a stretch to say that Jonah also may be referring back to what has just taken place with the sailors on the ship. They were worshiping vain idols. They relied on their own efforts to try and save themselves. They toiled hard to free themselves, to free themselves from the judgment of the Lord. We even see that they cried out to every single God that they could think of hoping to appease the one who brought the storm upon them. But after loosing that cargo, after pursuing vain idols, they, like Jonah now, recognize the one who turns to their own strength. The one who turns to vain idols will not experience or they will forsake the hope of their steadfast love, meaning they will not experience true salvation. That has become abundantly clear, not only to the, savior, uh, to the sailors, but now to the prophet Jonah. And why is it? That the one who forsakes the hope of steadfast love will not experience true salvation. And it's because of what Jonah finally proclaims here in verse 9. Salvation is from the Lord. Those who seek after human efforts, those who follow after vain idols, have no part in true salvation. Jonah now is finally reminded of and truly proclaiming what the Gentile sailors have proclaimed on the ship above him. Salvation comes from Yahweh, and from Yahweh alone does it come. And it is here after everything that Jonah has experienced that he finally recognizes and finally acknowledges God is supreme above all. There is none that is like him. And because of his supremacy, Jonah vows now to live a life so radically different than the life that was presented to us previously. No longer will he run in fear and in selfishness. No longer will he forsake the will of the Lord to gratify the desires of his flesh and his sin-filled heart. Rather, our prophet vows that he will sacrifice to the Lord. Not just out of obligation, but, but out of thanksgiving. Out of profound joy will he now sacrifice to the Lord. And that which he has vowed, he will pay. Jonah has rededicated his very life to the Lord because of because of God's great character. Because of who the Lord is, he is gracious, merciful, filled with loving kindness and 
especially he is supreme above all. And when I read this passage, especially as it closes, I can't help but think of an interchange between Jesus and his disciples in John chapter 6. John 6, 65 through 69 Jesus here shares something with the the disciples that is hard for them to stomach. It says, And he, meaning Jesus, said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In this portion of Scripture in John here that's often entitled in our Bibles, we'll see it labeled as the words of eternal life. Jesus makes clear that the only ones who, are, who can come to him are the ones who have been given by the Father. And that is too hard a phrase for some of the disciples at that time to handle. And we see many of them chose to leave. They chose to no longer follow Jesus. But, but Simon Peter, the prophet who, or the uh, apostle who is so well known for sticking his foot in his mouth, finally says something that is good and true and It is beautiful. Where would we go, God? Where would we go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. Only you can save. Peter recognizes no one else can save. There is no vain idol which can produce eternal life. Only God can. Isn't this reminiscent of what Jonah has just realized and proclaimed here in chapter 2. Where else could Jonah go? To who else could Jonah cry out? He tried everything else, but didn't turn to the Lord initially. He knew what the outcome would be if you go your own way. He had just experienced what that outcome was, and it wasn't a good one. It didn't lead to salvation In fact, it almost led him to death. May we also know that there is only one place that we can turn for eternal life. It is not our own efforts. It is not vain idols, not a false God that we turn to who can provide salvation. There is but one. There is only one that we can turn to for salvation, and that is the Lord our God. He is the only one. So third, we see God equips his servant for good works by revealing his supremacy to them. Now, as we've come to the end of chapter two, we have time actually to reflect upon the Lord's provision for Jonah. God has taken a wayward prophet And he's called him back to himself. Jonah has tried to the best of his ability. We've seen him try to render himself useless. 
to the best of his ability to run as far away from God as he possibly could go. But, but the Lord still has a purpose for Jonah. There is still work that needs to be done by the once faithless prophet. This is clearly seen in the three ways that God equipped Jonah for the good work set before him. Right? We saw first that God allowed Jonah to be refined. He allowed him to experience hardship. God, in his great love for Jonah, allowed him to feel the weight of judgment and correction. And he even, for a time, let Jonah feel as if he had been completely cast away from the presence of God. Though it was painful, it refined Jonah. It, it seemingly removed the pieces of doubt and disobedience that remained. And what we see was left after the process of refining was an obedient servant. One who would soon be willing to go in faith to Nineveh as God had initially called him to do. Second, we saw Jonah was saved by grace in an amazing way. God used the grace that had been extended to Jonah to motivate him, to equip him for the work that was still to be done. And lastly, we learned in the closing verse of chapter 2 that God impressed upon Jonah the truth of Yahweh's supremacy. God left Jonah without a doubt in his mind and in his heart that there was one true king. There was only one who is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. There is only one who could save. And there's no doubt in my mind that each of these provisions from the Lord prepared Jonah, equipped him for the work set before him. He now not only had a conceptual knowledge of who God was, but he could wholeheartedly say he had complete belief in the goodness, mercy, and grace of God. Yet why is it so important to the Lord that Jonah received the three provisions that we looked at this morning before going to do the work that, that God had told him to do? And it seems what God has done with Jonah is similar, actually, to what he's done with so many people that we're familiar with in the New Testament. I can't help but think back to Peter, the one who swore he would never deny Christ. Yet we see in Luke 22:61 to 62, he not only denied Christ, but he denied him three times. But after his resurrection, Christ restores Peter. Christ restores Peter, and Peter goes on to be one of the most impactful figures in the birth and growth of the Christian church. What about Isaiah? Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, we see Isaiah recognizes how unworthy he is for the ministry that God has called him to. There is no way that he is qualified to be the mouthpiece of Yahweh to the people of God. He says in verses uh, 6, 1 through 8. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Isaiah recognized how unworthy he was. He was not a worthy man to do this ministry that God had called him to do. Surely he could not be a prophet. But, but we see out of gratitude, we see that this led to an obedient and faithful ministry. And of course, all of us likely think to Paul. Right? We, have to, we have to think about Paul when we think of, of somebody who, who God has transformed the life of. At the end of Acts chapter 8, we, we see Saul is raging against the church. He is raging against the infant church, trying to do everything in his power to destroy it. He is opposing the spread of the gospel, going and imprisoning people, killing people, approving the killing of people. But in chapter 9, Saul is converted to Paul. Saul is converted to Paul, and we, we see the grace and mercy of the Lord on display. God shows it in such a way that, that Saul, now Paul, could never have imagined it would take place. And because of this, in response to the love of God, that God first loved him, now Paul would be a faithful minister of the word of God. He would go on to write a large portion of our New Testament. And he would go on to be faithful to God, even to the point of dying for him. What is it that these men have in common? We see each of them experience the full extent of the grace and the mercy of the Lord. And because they experience that grace and mercy, because they experience the love of the Lord, they were willing and ready to love others and equipped to serve others. They knew all that the Lord had done for them. And so they were excited. They were willing and ready to work on behalf of the one true king. This is exactly what we see happening in Jonah chapter 2, our wayward prophet who wanted nothing to do with the people of Nineveh, he had an opportunity to experience the full grace, mercy, and love and supremacy of God so that he might be willing now, better equipped now, well prepared now to show that same grace and mercy who, to people who, like him, did not deserve it. He was now ready to do this. Today, if you have not accepted yet the message of the gospel, friends, I, I challenge you, do so today. Become a useful instrument in the hands of the king. Turn to him. Proclaim him as Lord and as Savior. May you wholeheartedly believe that Jesus left perfect harmony with the Father and Spirit. May you believe that he took on flesh, becoming truly God and truly man. May you believe that he lived a life of perfect obedience to God so that he could die on the cross in our place. That he could take the wrath of God upon himself and give us who proclaim him as Lord righteousness. May you believe that he rose from the grave on the third day. And may we believe now that if we turn to him we can have eternal life. We can experience true forgiveness of our sins. We can be raised to newness of life out of the depths, just as Jonah was in Jonah chapter 2.
And if you're here this morning and you already have accepted Christ as your Savior, brothers and sisters, if you, if you are one of God's chosen servants, may we be faithful servants. May we be excited to serve the Lord. May we be prepared to know that, that because God loves us and because God is working all things together for our good, and here's the key here, though, is good is defined not by us but by God, and we actually see good defined right after Romans 8:28 and Romans 8:29. Good there is to be conformed to the image of the Son. May we know that God out of love will conform us more and more to the image of the Son. And what that means is there may be some painful refining that takes place. Actually, certainly there will be painful refining that takes place. And praise God that it will. Because in that sin, brothers and sisters, will be exposed. Sin will be brought to the surface so it can be, Lord willing, burned away. And so that we can shine more brightly for the King. Challenges will come, but we must know that this is meant for our good as defined by God and also for most importantly, his glory. Friends, we need to know that today. May we also often look back upon the saving grace of Christ, the salvation that we have received, and let that be our ministry motivation. May we remember that though when Jonah was cast into the sea, as I mentioned, he was close to death, but in sin, we were fully dead. Not mostly dead, as it says in the Princess Bride. We were dead, dead, completely dead. But God raised us to newness of life. He gave us a chance to finally, for the first time in our lives, live in obedience. To live free from sin, no longer enslaved to sin, but now enslaved to the one king. May we be motivated to serve him, not just because of what he has done, but also because he is the only one worthy of being served. He is the only one worthy of all glory, all honor. And all praise. As we leave here this morning, may we be well equipped. May we feel well equipped to go joyfully and with thanksgiving to serve the Lord wherever we are in our homes. Fathers, as you shepherd your children, may you do so with great joy, even though you're correcting them on the same sin for the hundredth time. May you do so with joy. Because of how many times your Lord has corrected you of the same sin and still offered you forgiveness. When we're at work and we deal with that difficult coworker who doesn't know the Lord, may we be excited to share the gospel message with them. When we're at school with a classmate or for many of you, my students, your siblings, your classmates, When they're on your nerves for the 50th time that day, may you show grace and mercy just as God has shown you if you've been saved by grace through faith. And even on vacation when we're away from people and think that that gives us an excuse to be away from the Lord, may we still be looking for ministry opportunities to love others as Christ has loved us. Wherever we go, brothers and sisters, may we be excited to serve the Lord. May we know that we've been equipped to serve the Lord because of who God is, because of what he's done. May we be readily available and willing to serve him.